iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we'll be discussing the potential kings of London this season as Chelsea and Spurs go head-to-head. Or will Arsenal have something to say about that as they prepare to face Leicester? We'll be talking about some of the issues that the Foxes themselves are facing ahead of this season. We'll also be discussing Frank Lampard and Steven Gerrard as their teams Everton and Aston Villa go head-to-head this weekend. And what about those mad, desperate transfer window signings? We'll talk about some of our best. Stay tuned for that. This is The Game. Hello again. Welcome back to the Game Podcast with myself, Hugh Wisencroft, today alongside Jonathan Northcroft, Tom Clark, and Gregor Robertson. And we begin by discussing Chelsea. Well, there's a, there's a huge game at the weekend. Chelsea facing Spurs. And it got me thinking about who might be the Kings of London in the Premier League this season. Of course, that crown has rested firmly with Chelsea for a, for a little bit. But Antonio Conte, who's had it before, of course, as a Premier League title winner, will want it back in his new role at Spurs. It's interesting. Over the last six months, there have been contrasting fortunes, so maybe that means the tide is turning. Chelsea did manage to scrape past Everton on the opening day, but Spurs looked ready to go for something big this season with their 4-1 win over Southampton. My first question is, is about the Kings of London, really, but also how high that bar could be. Jonathan, is either of these sides, or are either of these sides, ready to realistically challenge for the Premier League? I don't think either are ready to realistically win it, but challenge, yeah. And I think uh, I think Spurs are the team I'm I'm watching this first half of the season. Wouldn't surprise me if they are top for a while. Wouldn't surprise me even if they're top going into the the World Cup because I think City and Liverpool have got a bit of transition to do, and Tottenham have uh, have been brought to the boil beautifully by Antonio Conte. The way they finished the season last last season was incredible. He's configured that team totally to his specifications. He signed so well that the, the signs in the opening game were that all that momentum, all the characteristics that we saw him imbue the club with are there still. You know, the, the coming back, roaring back from the setback of an early goal, the ruthless attacking, the much more solid structure, the, the physicality uh, and, and the happiness and enjoyment I just think he's done an incredible job alongside Fabio Patrici and this is them this is them at the at the high point if it wasn't for City and Liverpool I think they could win the title because of them I don't think they can but I do think they can have a real go and Kings of London they could end up Kings of London this year because Chelsea everything's been or being done for Thomas Tuchel but it's a new team there's question marks and, and this transition there. 
this is this is a brilliant game to have so early in the season because of the dynamics of where each club is. What do you think? If neither side is is realistically ready to to win the title, I don't know if you agree, Tom, that that at least one could realistically challenge. If not, do you see one side or the other as being, you know, firmly ahead in terms of where they should finish? I'm not quite there yet on the Tottenham hype, I've got to say. It's it's very it feels very early for Tottenham. And I'm not going full Sir Alex Ferguson lads, it's Tottenham. But but it, it still is a little bit, let's be honest. <laughs> you know, they've not they've they are significantly improved both in terms of off the pitch with their transfer targets and how they've acquired players over the summer. And they're improved on the pitch, but they still haven't necessarily done anything far greater than what Mauricio Pochettino achieved in his time there. One thing that is fascinating is the expectation that seems to be among among the fans. It seems to be different and it seems to be a lot calmer. I was speaking to a friend of mine who works at the Times and uh, is a season ticket holder and went to their first game and he said the most marked point about the atmosphere was that even when they went 1-0 down there wasn't that sense of oh here we go again we're going to get you know they, he was like everyone myself included and he's one of the most sceptical Tottenham fans I know said I was just convinced we were going to score and win we were all over them Like I was confident that Conte would change it if he needed to but with that comes added pressure so I, I don't know I feel like this this is such a massive massive game for Tottenham I feel in a weird way and like Chelsea arguably are weirdly I'm trying to look think for a better word than underdogs but you know the, the, the focus will all be on Tottenham now it'll all be on Conte and we'll need to see a performance from them that suggests that they've reached this higher plane that Johnny and lots of other people are excited about them getting to if we reach Sunday and all the talk is about big name signings coming into Chelsea who aren't in the team yet. It doesn't really matter if Chelsea lose. I think their fans will feel, well, wait until we get these great players in and we'll have a chance. How do you compare the two at the moment, um, Gregor? Are you one of those that thinks Spurs are maybe a slightly better side right now? Slightly more kind of, there just seems to be slightly more synergy sort of throughout the club, if you know what I mean, between... We said this last. We said this in the preview show. Chelsea just feels very much like, oh wow, he's a big name. Mm-hmm. Let's go and get him and spend a lot of money on him. That's that's not really strategy, and it might you know Chelsea have done that for a long time and it's <laughs> got them a lot of success, but it feels a bit different this time. Um, you know, just really off the cuff. I, I think the the changes at Spurs. You know, I, I kind of agree with Tom. I think if you look at their team, I wouldn't necessarily say it's better than peak Pochettino. Spurs on paper this team but they have a proven winner in the dugout and they have a change in sort of mentality almost that seems to be pervading the club in terms of also how often do we, have we seen Spurs with like three weeks of the transfer window to go or whatever still having so many players like so many gaps to fill or you know Daniel, Daniel Levy is renowned for going right down to the wire so he can knock 10 million quid off or whatever they've done it all really they might get one more Um it's been it's been pretty kind of clinical and so that I think that also sort of breeds confidence and a sort of air of like you know the club knows knows what they're doing now and it's it's not it's not trying to skimp and, and scrimp and save it's actually a clear kind of focus on competing with the 
competing with the best teams in the country now. It's going to be an, an awkward, weird, disjointed season. But if Tottenham can win the first four games before we get to the end of the transfer window and use their early start with the transfers uh, to their benefit, you know, they could be four or five points ahead of some of their rivals where we think they might finish in the table. And as we've seen in the last few seasons, you know, especially when it comes to maybe fourth place, I know a lot of Tottenham fans thinking it'll be higher than that. Um, that's a huge difference. It could be a huge difference. You won't have to wait until the final day you won't have to have those those final week or final few games um, of concern so I think it could be massive for them to start positively and the team does look like there's a, a real coherent um, pattern at the moment even the, like I, I mentioned last time I think um, the, the wing backs who had been derided by a lot of people you know putting in very good performances looking very very solid um, it's a huge improvement from Tottenham Hotspur but it's going to be an interesting one for Spurs as a club going away to Stamford Bridge is not exactly the fixture that you look forward to most. Well, I think there is some work um, and certainly more work for Chelsea to do than Tottenham in the rest of this transfer window. And there have been a couple of big names uh, linked with moves to Stamford Bridge. Tom Roddy joins us on the game podcast right now uh, to give us a bit of an update. You're right, Tom. Hi, Hugh. Hello, mate. Uh, what's going on with uh, Chelsea at the moment? Todd Bowley, their interim sporting director. It's been scattergun. I know it's been, um, well, it's basically been like They've been get, they've been getting blown out of the water by Barcelona on a lot of their moves, but it looks like they could get a couple of big names, including one from Barcelona. How's it looking? Yeah, well, Bowley when he came into this uh, business very fresh, he saw it as comparable to uh, other businesses in that it's a relationship based business. And of course, we all saw that meal that he had with Juan Laporta, the Barcelona president. In uh, in Barcelona earlier this summer, and it was clearly a, a business, a, a relationship that he wanted to form. And at first, it appeared, especially the fact that Jules Kounde ended up going to to Barcelona instead of Chelsea in the end, it looked like one which hadn't been too beneficial from the offset. But now. Chelsea are close to agreeing a fee for Frankie de Jong and also we've, we've spoken before on the podcast about their issues up front where are the goals going to come from this season and it, it's certainly not quite close to being done at all but there is a possibility of Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang coming to Chelsea those conversations are happening I mean I'm not sure that Bamiyang isn't. We're going to talk about desperation signings a little bit later on, but I'm not sure it, it isn't a bit of desperation. I don't really see how he clicks in this Chelsea team. Maybe we'll discuss that in a moment. Um, just on the transfers, before we talk about how they might fit in, Wesley Fafana from Leicester, is that still on or is there going to be another centre-back coming in at Chelsea? Yeah, it's still on for now. This is a, a week in which they're planning to push again on seeing if they can get Leicester to not not come to the table but um, come to a, a negotiation but they, they've been quite serious with it this is you know it's only a few days ago that they actually put in their first bid of 60 million then it was in excess of 70 million now they're looking to up it again and, and part of the reason I think is that they've known from the very beginning that in order to actually get a deal done for Fafana it has to be 
it just has to be a world record fee, really. It's it's very likely to be over 80 million because Leicester don't need to sell. Um, they've only just, Fafana signed a five-year deal in March. The, the only problem is whether Fafana starts kicking up a fuss, which so far he hasn't done. He's had some really quite curious social media activity in in recent days. But he's he's he played in the opening weekend against Brentford. He's due to play again this weekend. So it, it, at the moment they're in a they're in a, a strong position, I think, Leicester. Uh, just quickly before you leave us, um I'll be asking the guys in a second about which managers under more pressure. Um this season, I mean, look, things are going well at Spurs, but I mean, pressure to deliver on all the transfers that have come in. Then you've got Chelsea, where we expected them to deliver last season. They didn't. And now it's certainly, for me, one of those seasons where Thomas Tuchel is fighting for his Chelsea future. Perhaps, yeah. I think he's already... It was interesting, actually, the change of tone from Tuchel because in LA, at the very beginning of pre-season, he sat down and said we can't call this a transitional season because that we can't, we can't use those excuses already even though he was suggesting that's what it was and then the friday press conference before the opening game of the season against everton he said we are in transition so it, i think that there is already a sense of that happening at chelsea but if all of this business gets done if fafana comes in if they get a striker if they get frankie de Jong, i mean i can't remember a club acting in the same way and we will see a huge amount of pressure on thomas tuchel because Topoli and the Clear Lake Capital Group have, have given him everything that he wants. Okay, Tom Roddy, thanks for joining us on the game and keeping our discussion going. Um, I might as well go to you next, Gregor. What do you think? Who's under more pressure? Chelsea, no doubt, and 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 Tuchel. Um, as I said earlier, it's just there just seems to be more of a sort of uh, a, a seam running through Spurs of everyone being on the same page, and Chelsea seem to be kind of caught in a bit of a. Look, as Tom said, he doesn't want to use that word as a sort of transition, um, but that's what it is, and I think probably that's that kind of atmosphere is still pervading the club a little bit. So, look, the, the fact remains, though. I mean, I, I thought this when I was watching the watching them against Everton uh, at the weekend. Like, there's still this is still a club stocked with, <laughs> with some yeah. world class players. You kind of forget as well that they can rely on the on the production line from the academy. And, you know, still got Mount and James and. Loftus Cheek still hanging about there, but he can come in and, and surprise people. Go, oh, yeah, he's good. Mm. <laughs> Conor Gallagher so, was on the bench. Exactly, yeah. So they, they have still got a ridiculous uh, group of players on their uh, in their squad. So uh, and, and and as you as you've said already, it's going to be we, we feel it's going to be greatly improved before the window closes. So I, I think it'd be foolish, despite all the sort of the goings on behind the scenes at Chelsea. I think it'd be foolish to to write them off or say that they're you know they're not going to be really competing for the top four. Yeah, but the question was about pressure. Who's under more pressure? And you answered it. You said Chelsea and Thomas Tuchel, but I wonder at what level. Johnny, if he doesn't get a, a trophy, for example, this season, maybe he doesn't even finish in the top four. What do you think the future would hold for Thomas Tuchel? And by the way, it doesn't have to be at the end of the season. You know, the next sort of three months as we reach the World Cup could be hugely important for his future. Yeah, I, I, I agree with the way Gregor outlined it I think Tuchel's under pressure simply because 
anytime you have a new ownership at a football club and that ownership hasn't actually appointed the manager in charge there's immediately uh, a, a, a tension or a potential tension because one of the ways to make your mark clearly is to appoint a manager and control the whole thing then when that ownership goes and spends big and gives the manager what they want in the transfer market it comes down to him to make it work so those are the those are the sort of conditions and we've seen it so many times at football clubs um, that, that, that managers depart in these circumstances when there's a new ownership that, that's why Tuchel's under pressure he's not under pressure in the sense of having to justify how great a coach he is or, or what he's done for Chelsea but there's conditions there that means it's like having a new boss at your work he has to perform for his new boss now and it does strike me that they're signing well they might have overpaid for a couple of people like Cucurella, but but they've signed well. If they get De Jong, Aubameyang and Fofana, they've signed sensationally well. But that in itself creates a pressure because he has to make that work pretty quickly. So it's a season that this could be fantastic for Thomas Tuchel. He could take this new team to new heights. But if he doesn't deliver that quickly, yeah, I, I, I think he is. I think he's on the line and. Clear Lake and Todd Bowley haven't bought into this to sort of mess about. They've paid a lot of money and they will certainly be looking at Champions League football and top four as the as a minimum. So if Arsenal have a good season as well as Spurs and Chelsea are wavering on the top four, he'll be under pressure. It's going to be an interesting one. Mm. Very intriguing. Antonio Conte back at Chelsea, of course. Um, and if he gets a win... It's going to send out a big, big, big signal to the rest of the Premier League. Do you think they'll do it? And how do you think they'll do it? Oh, goodness me. I'll, I'll ask Gregory. He used He's to play football. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't know whether they will win the game. I could see it being a draw. That's very boring. I know I normally go for a slightly more off-the-cuff weird prediction. I, I just think coming back to the points about pressure, and Gregor alluded to it with the players and kind of in reference to Tottenham and perhaps... I slightly agree with him, particularly in defence, that they're not necessarily that kind of elite level group yet. And and Chelsea are, you know, as Gregor said, you look at that team that they put out against Everton and this idea that it's a season of transition or it's a bit ramshackle and you're like, bloody hell, they've got loads of, loads of top quality players. So I think you'll see that in this game. And I think there is this perhaps perception that, oh, Tottenham will be ready to take them apart. And, and maybe they will, but the other thing is that Thomas Tuchel, as much as Antonio Conte is one of Europe's best and most revered coaches, so is Thomas Tuchel. So I wouldn't be, I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if Tuchel's got a few surprises up his sleeve for Conte in terms of how he sets up, and that weirdly, this kind of slight weird underdog perception that seems to be coming out as the, this Chelsea team facing the mighty Spurs who started the season so well and bought so well, I wouldn't be surprised if Chelsea maybe nick it. Um, in a kind of very much we're the big dogs kind of way um, and we've got the superstars and you've still got a long way to go I, th- I think if Chelsea stick with the back three and they've come up against Spurs front three which looks uh, probably the best in the league now uh, Oof, that's punchy I know you're, you're agreeing with Jamie O'Hara you understand that <laughs> don't you Gregor well I think so in current form uh, only one game in well, I mean, <laughs> pick, 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 pick who's better then. I mean, the only, I mean, the, take, the only I'd competition take Harland, is Liverpool. Harland, Foden, and 
any of the other I lads wouldn't at even, City. I wouldn't even really call that a front three. I mean, he's like as, as in a front three of three three full-on attackers. Manchester City play with no will play now with one guy up front I'd and t- then a bunch of interchangeable people behind yeah, them. So I'll take I'll take Haaland plus Cancelo and De Bruyne. <laughs> and it's no worries. <laughs> Look, obviously Liverpool's a question there. I'm getting off yeah, piece yeah, a little yeah. bit here. No, but, that's fine. But, <laughs> We're allowed to do that. But you know, you couldn't even really nail down their guaranteed starters. I think Nunes soon will be. Luis Diaz probably is now. Uh, but now that Sadio Mane's gone, I, you know, it's, I, a drop, it's a drop off. You can say it. Well, it, it's there's question marks there now. At least not it's not set in stone. Spurs is set in stone. Yeah. D- despite how much uh, Tom wants to wax lyrical about Richarlison, he'll be coming. He'll be... in the minutes he'll get. <laughs> they, they're set in stone. So look. <laughs> I also think it's quite important that that uh, Chelsea of that has finally kind of like that's put to bed and he signed a two year deal because looking at their defence, I said this in the previous show. It, that's for me is kind of Koulibaly be a good signing, but him and Silva getting on a little bit. Aspilicueta is too, but he's he's solid and he's a captain, and that would just be another area of uncertainty there. And who's I'm not sure who's coming in next. Um, so having you know having that put to bed, I think is is big for them. But yeah, that, that's that's the biggest thing for me. Spurs front three against against uh, against that back three of Chelsea if they play a back three. I, I sort of agree with that because Koulibaly and and Silva are in, in some ways similar, brilliant careers and superb readers of the game. But is there a is there an element where you could exploit the spaces around them? Clearly, there is athletically, and Antonio Conte is an absolute genius at, at, at coming from wide areas into the middle and, and, and doing that. So I do see that as somewhere they could they could exploit. Um, and Spurs, yeah, you know, are they a super team in, at the back? No, the the, 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 the the sort of qualities elsewhere. So it's probably there's, there's chances for both of those coaches, but I think it's going to be intensity. I think that's what's that's what, that, that's the thing that makes me admire Spurs so much and that's why I think Spurs will win this game I think they'll arrive with that Conte intensity and Chelsea are a new team in transition is to use that word again and it's hard to, to, to sort of get that intensity straight away it doesn't come out of the box not when people are getting to know each other so that's why I see Spurs as favourites for this one I actually think it's the midfield too in either team that will mm. make, make the difference actually I think there is Great quality with Chelsea. I know Jorginho and, and Kante started the first game. Kovacic was on the bench. I'd start Kovacic yep. in this game. I think he just keeps Chelsea ticking over a bit of a metronome. But I actually think, you know, they are quality players, but they aren't quite at the level that we've seen from those Chelsea midfielders. If it's to be a Kante and Kovacic or a Jorginho and, and Kovacic, I think if they can control the possession just that little bit more 60-40 um, I think the tide will turn in their favour intrigued to see what happens at Stamford Bridge this weekend probably the game of the weekend but there are loads for us to look ahead to and we're going to do Arsenal next um, Arsenal are taking on Leicester this weekend but I want to keep that Kings of London theme going because all you Arsenal fans would have been asking what about us well you're next on the game 
so staying in London and to the Emirates this weekend uh, where Arsenal host Leicester. Two sides and two clubs where I think the mood is very different at the moment. I thought it was worth discussing these two teams. Arsenal, we, we, we've touched on, but look, they're, they're very positive with their mood there at the moment. Um, Saliba, man of the match in his first game against Crystal Palace. William Saliba, who was Young Player of the Year in France last year, has been loaned in each of his first three seasons at Arsenal. He's now back and on that performance will be a a big part of the first team this season. But Alexander Zinchenko, Gabriel Jesus, the quality remains after their moves from Manchester City. So very quickly, Gregor, all smiles at Arsenal. Easy win this weekend, right? <laughs> I think they, I think they will win, yeah. But I, I think we'll put that partly down to kind of uh, a bit of dis- a bit of unrest at, at Leicester. I, look, Arsenal are in the best shape that we've seen them in for 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 years. And uh, you mentioned Saliba. I think he he looks like he's going to be an enormous bonus for them this year. The, his stature and kind of presence actually it's not just of you know what he is reading of the game and what he did uh, on the ball um against palace it was just you look at the you look at him and you go he's a big he's a big unit and he's someone that looks like he's kind of he's just got a big presence at the back you know hunger so, as well he's got he's got that hunger to impress at yeah the absolutely so um i'm not convinced entirely convinced about about uh, ben white at right back but I think aside from that, they look pretty well balanced and Jesus had a, a great impact. I think if we're going to follow on from our little debate, I think it's 1-0 one one nil to Jesus, even though he didn't score. Absolutely. What? Harlan scored twice. No, it's Junior's quite... got a goal and set one up. Jesus was the winner this weekend. Jesus was, was electric. And we're talking about, again, let's come back to the question, the biggest impact on their team, the biggest... So, yeah, 1-0 Jesus. Anyway. Uh, so... No, look, it's very positive. So I think um, if you're talking about in terms of their place in London, still, I still think they've got a bit to go. To be honest, to I think they are behind. They will be behind Spurs, and still got a way to go to catch up with Chelsea as well. Okay, because I was having this conversation the other day, and it is an interesting one with Arsenal. I think if they're fifth again, is that good? Is that good enough for Mikel Arteta? Oof, good question. I'd have to be very tight, like you know, I kind of going toe to toe right until the end. Yeah, and Why? it couldn't and it couldn't invo- place. It couldn't involve. You don't need to make the race for fifth. Well, it last does, to the f- it who cares? It doesn't matter because look at the way they yeah. fell out last time. Yeah. That was I a think, terrible end to the season. They yeah. put a downer on it. So if they go toe to toe and they don't fall away, they don't collapse, then yeah, okay, you could you could, could cut, cut them some slack. But they, he needs to be. I think he really needs to be getting in that in that fourth spot now. I'm inclined to agree, particularly having pushed pushed him as the manager of the season last year, <laughs> only for him to let me down on that front. Never mind the Arsenal fans. Um, yeah, just because I think even that they've got such a settled squad now, and they've spent well, and they spent quite a lot again. Um, you know, it feels like Ramsdale being the goalkeeper and moving Burn Leno on. You know, things like that that you felt they were moving through last season to use that transition word. Um, Again, yeah, they'd have to win a cup, I think. Maybe, oh, uh, yeah, I was going to say that. But that would that would be the save. But I do, th- I agree with Gregor as well. You couldn't you couldn't win a cup and also, you know, bottle it again at the end of the season in hmm. terms of top four. You'd have to be neck and neck, you know, in a kind of uh, three goes into two battle with Chelsea and Tottenham for third and fourth, and just be pipped whilst winning the FA Cup or something. And then I think then I think he could justify progression and 
next year it'll be my year guys Johnny what do you think um, I wanted to ask you about Leicester if you've got a comment on Arsenal go ahead but on Leicester City I think things are very different so go ahead I think you do have a comment on Arsenal go ahead a little bit I just totally agree on, on Arteta he's actually been there a long time uh, and he's been given what he wants he's done really well up till now but um you know what's it all about if if, if fifth is, is okay I think he has to try and challenge for the top four um, and what happened at the end of last season is the big question mark against him so has to be uh, a little bit different this one Leicester's just uh, you know, I've got a lot of mates who are Leicester fans and it's just a strange situation it's it's um, documented that it's just, you know it's a one club that hasn't made a signing um, and this you know Kasper Schmeichel going is just such a Sort of disorientating um, experience thing for, for for Leicester fans, and the club's very good at selling players, and looks like it's going to get a high high price for Fofana. But I don't think that was in the plan at the start of the window. Um, so that leaves me wondering, you know, what what, what on earth they're going to do at the back? It's uh, and then then you know there's there's like Safardi and and. Evans, who are such big players, but but coming towards the end, we might still lose Telemans. Uh, it's it's less the people are kind of quite pessimistic anyway. But this is was pessimistic. I've heard my mates for a for a long time, and I just yeah, I have to be honest. I I, I fear for Leicester a little bit. I had to do a, a predictions this week, uh, and I think I put them somewhere down at fourteenth, which given that they've got you know the best training ground in the world and, and, and what's happened in recent years will not be considered good enough anymore would have been 10 years ago but, but not now yeah I mean look they could lose James Madison the, the players that you mentioned Tielemans and Fafana as well that would totally destroy any chances of a good season they might get some big money in I know you're, you're wondering what they might do with their defence don't worry Aaron Wambasaka, uh, Eric Bailly Victor Lindelof I mean <laughs> Phil Jones they're all available okay <laughs> they are all available so you know there are players out there I found it strange to watch their draw against Brentford with the ease with which the tactical changes that Thomas Frank made change the game basically mm. I, I you know I believe Leicester and I believe Brendan Rodgers are better than that opening game of the season maybe they're a bit sluggish but um, what do you think about it I think tactically it's fascinating with a coach like Rodgers who's known for kind of being a bit of an innovator and also being seen as one of the bright young coaches in the game last season how many times did we talk about how do they keep conceding from set pieces how do they keep conceding from corners surely he's got to learn from this and then again in, a, in the inverse way, you know, you have a team just tweaking slightly and them not being able to um, respond. I think that also comes down to experienced players as well. I mean, you mentioned, Johnny mentioned Schmeichel and, and never mind Leicester fans. I feel weird without Kasper Schmeichel being in, not in the Premier League. I mean, that's got to be one of the most significant departures. I mean, when I heard about it, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. And how are they letting him go? Why does he want to go? I mean, he was Mr. Leicester. The fact that he wanted to leave and move on to me was the most significant thing, which suggests some kind of unrest, certainly, and unpredictability about the future. But I think when you factor in those kind of experienced heads not being there, and as you say, question mark growing for me over Roger's ability to get the most out of a slightly mishmash squad. I, I, yeah, Johnny said 14th. You, you could be a bit lower than that I, I, I think it's a wee bit unfair on Brendan Rodgers personally I think last summer was a bit of a disaster in the transfer market they spent like 55 to 60 million or something on uh, Pats and Daka didn't do a great deal Vestergaard 
I think they want rid of him now. Bertrand, I think mm. you could say the same about, um, and Bubakari Samari, who they want gone as well. So that was the first thing. You know, we we talk so much about Leicester being really good in the transfer market, and crikey, they have been, but that was a bad summer. And you know, I think that's partly why we're seeing no no incomings yet. They need to get rid of some. I think they need to get some out before before they, they, they can spend any money. And they're also in that kind of really difficult middle ground. It's like they're at the top of the middle ground, you know, beneath, beneath the teams that are they're in the top four, the ones that are kind of have aspirations of pushing into that level. And, you know, when you see you see so many clubs around around the Premier League now, like Southampton or I'm sure, you know, Palace of Conor Gallagher or, you know, Brighton, they can sign players from the top top level and, you know, the top top four Premier League clubs. Leicester can't do that. They're, they're seen as a rival, really. And mm. they're, in fact, the, the club that everyone's trying to, you know, <laughs> they're trying to poach their players and they're selling them really well for great great sums of money. But they're in, I think they're in quite a difficult position there. So the combination of that, you know, poor summer last, uh, last summer by their standards and where they find themselves, still kind of seen as a challenger, even though I don't think they're going to be this year. Um, I think it's quite a difficult position for, for Brendan Rodgers. It's, it's almost sort of a little bit of a Pochettino Spurs era here uh, end the Spurs sort of scenario here where they need a refresh he's been speaking about it for a, probably a year maybe longer you know we, Schmeichel's the last of quite a well, sorry Vardy will be the mm. last but there's been quite a list of them Mes Morgan retired last summer yeah. quite a list of these guys who've done so much with Leicester City who the time's coming to, you know their time is coming to an end and you need to refresh you need to do it and you know I think Brendan Rodgers knows that more than anyone so I think it's a bit unfair to say that you know to question what he can do with this team I think there is a question mark about how long he's ever been with a, with a club mm. but it's the same as Pochettino I mean he would look, look now and see it Spurs transforming their squad and spending millions of pounds and go well you know I would have quite liked to have done that Brendan Rodgers might look back in a few years and think the same Yeah I mean well you, you obviously have the, the glory of the Premier League title win but then you have the Rodgers you know, that we're talking about Arteta bottling the top four. Rodgers did the same with Leicester to an extent, maybe not quite in a similar way. You know, they were they were part of that conversation for a while, certainly. Um, won the FA Cup, fantastic achievement, of course. But, I mean, Johnny, where what do you think needs to happen now? Greg has talked a lot there about perception and being being the middle clubs being chased rather than the kind of Brightons who Brentfords and Crystal Palaces who everyone's like oh aren't they great they're so such good fun don't we admire mm. them Leicester are beyond that now because of the success they've had we kind of hinted at it last year what do you think it needs to be a rethink with Rodgers at the fore i.e. let's get some young players in let's mould a new team it'll take a while let's take 14th and 12th the next two seasons do you think that's realistic I don't I think it has to be that kind of ref, refresh and rebuild. That's Leicester's identity. That's been the post-title win. That, that's been what they are. You know, the, the clever signings, uh, playing a lovely brand of football and being well coached and, and so on. They've got to get back to that. And I think the question mark about Brendan isn't about coaching, but it's recruitment. And, and it's been alluded to, but it was the same at Liverpool. Great coach almost won the title and then it all went wrong when he brought in the Balotelli's and, and, and tried to sort of change things and, and, and it didn't work um, yes he signed quite well at Celtic clearly um, but a different market and then at Leicester his best work's been coaching work and it's been with players that were signed for him but apart from that list from last summer you know I'd add in 
Iosi Perez and Ryan Bennett uh, and some of the transfers that, that Brendan's sort of overseen. He's, he's grabbed hold of recruitment um, in the last couple of years and recruitment having been Leicester's lifeblood has actually got worse and not better. So that's, that to me is the crux of everything. Leicester, have, Leicester should be expecting to be top half of the Premier League because they've invested so much over the years um, and they should be looking to build a new team because that's the identity. Um, but they have to recruit better than they've done in the last 18 months. I think uh, when he arrived from Celtic, he brought uh, Lee Congerton was uh, uh, head of recruitment at Celtic and he brought him with that's him right. and he's just left for Atalanta so that's that right. may be a reflection of what yeah. what hasn't been a, a great a hugely successful uh, period in Leicester's well, recruitment and now finances are the issue and Brendan Rodgers has pointed that out um, and that's maybe why there haven't been any signings uh, ultimately they might need to sell these players to be able to revamp their squad so it might be back to the drawing board for Brendan Rodgers uh, anyway we'll see how they get on against Arsenal this weekend a tricky away day for them at to London um, and we'll be talking about an away day for Everton next as they go to Aston Villa Lampard versus Gerrard two managers who've maybe flattered to deceive as coaches we'll discuss that next on the game but remember if you're enjoying things make sure you hit that subscribe button rate us leave us a review as well as you're listening to me Daisy Apple's iPhone disassembly robot is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. So to Villa Park, Aston Villa versus Everton and actually two of the most under pressure managers in English football who came to their clubs with pretty decent reputations. Steven Gerrard after the great work he did with Rangers in Scotland. Uh, Frank Lampard who'd helped Chelsea qualify for the Champions League when they had a transfer embargo. Didn't uh, end the way he would have wanted but of course taking over a side in a relegation battle with that experience. Maybe some expected him to finally flourish as a coach. As yet, very difficult conditions for Lampard. Steven Gerrard may be slightly different. He's been given tools to work with. I think he's got a very good squad. I've mentioned it, haven't I? Uh, very good squad. Very good signings this summer as well. Lots of people saying that they need to be at least top half, if not challenge for a place uh, in Europe this year. But they started with an opening day defeat to Bournemouth um, this weekend. Everton, of course, beaten by Chelsea. Um, before I ask who's under more pressure going into this game, was I wrong to say earlier that they'd flattered to deceive as coaches, Tom? 
I'm, I'm not sure. This show should definitely have started with doom, 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 under pressure because that's the whole that's the whole theme. We're only one game in. Everyone's under pressure. Yeah. But I know I completely agree. If you look at Villa's opening fixtures as a fan under Gerrard, signings been made. You know, feeling a little bit settled. You've got Bournemouth, Everton, and Crystal Palace as your opening three fixtures. If after the Palace game we're talking about you know maybe only one win, dare I say it, no wins then he really, really will be under pressure. He far more so for me than Lampard going into this game, just because I think as well, Lampard's career, you touched on both of them there, Lampard's career has been far more in the focus and in the spotlight, if you like, particularly within the English media and within English football. Gerard had the success in Scotland. Some people can be dismissive of it. It was a great achievement, but it kind of makes you a little bit Oh, look at him doing well over there, doesn't it? As much as I'm trying not to offend two Scots that are on, currently on the <laughs> yeah, show. You're on the over, over there. <laughs> Up there, over, over there, wherever over it is. Over what? You know, the wall. Somewhere, somewhere beyond Salford, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> but no, I, like he, the point being, Gerard had a one great achievement on his CV. Lampard had some serious kind of highs and lows already in his career and is now at Everton, which is a I don't think many managers would want the task that he's got. Um, we touched on that in the preview show. So Gerard is under huge pressure, I would say, already. Yeah, I tend to agree. Gregor? Yeah, when you're talking about Lampard kind of ups and downs, I, I don't know, has he had any great achievement in his career yet? Well, I do think that Hugh alluded to it there, that, you know, the Chelsea galvanising that team that, you know, when we look and think about the Chelsea team now with the superstars that they've got, that young team, with lots of young players, you know, bringing Mason Mount through. I think he deserves credit for Mason Mount's success in his career. No, they won't. No? No. Not having that? No, I mean, Mason Mount's a top-class player and he knew it and so did Jody Morris. Jody Morris has spoken about it for a long time and they had him at Derby County. So, same Reese James. These are like England internationals for the rest of their careers. I don't think... Look, you, you can look back at that and, and retrospectively say, yes, he deserves credit, but you know there was no other option either. No, so, I mean, don't... Look, like, did, I'm not saying he did a bad job. And it's, it's the same at Derby County, actually. He, you know, they got them to the playoffs, so they finished sixth. I think they finished sixth the year before. It was like, it's still... I'm not dismissing that as an achievement because I know how hard the championship is. Mm. And, you know, they were close. They got to the final and they were very close. They lost out to Villa, obviously. That is an achievement. Uh, that's, doing, that's doing well. And he did well... At Chelsea, but I don't. There, there's also kind of gaping holes in 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 uh, his coach, well, not his coaching, in his in his tactical approach. I mm. think a lot of the time there has been, and at Everton it seems to be shifting a lot in terms of <laughs> so far anyway. Although it might be to do with the players he's got, but it's like parking the bus yeah. down down in the in the high thirties in possession. So you know. I think they both got a lot to prove. I, one thing I would say about Gerard is that was an enormous achievement. <laughs> I have to say, it, look, and uh, you, I said big achievement, didn't I? Yeah, it, but it was it was enormous. There's not many jobs in football with a greater pressure than that, and particularly at the time he came into the club too. So, uh, look, I've said this before already. It was a that was a great achievement, and not not the not one that I enjoyed. But um, <laughs> stopping Celtic from getting ten in a row was a big achievement. And yes, he's under pressure now because it's not been a, a thrilling start uh, for, to life at, at Villa Park by any means. Um, and there are also some holes there in terms of the goals they keep conceding. So um, they're both under pressure and they're both going to be under pressure because of their stature in the game too. So um, this is always going to happen until until one kind of races away. These guys are going to still keep getting compared every time they meet. Mm. It's funny because I thought 
Steven Gerrard would get at least three seasons. I remember we discussed it when he was appointed and I was like, this is a brilliant job for him to get because Villa will give him time. They know he's an emerging manager. They know it's going to take time for him to, to change the squad around to how he wants it. But I think he's got six wins in the last 22 in the Premier League. Uh, it's not going to be good enough to keep you in the job for the next two seasons if it continues in that vein because this is a club with very high aspirations. Jonathan, how do you read the situation for both Gerard and Lampard at the moment? Yeah, both a lot to prove. Um, you know, we can't be binary. They're, they're, they're not terrible. Um, they've both done things. Stephen's done more than Frank, but, but they've both showed some sort of talent. But... Um, only up to a point, and now they now they need to deliver at clubs. And I um I was really interested looking at the sort of Twitter feedback, which is always dangerous. But um, to my Graham Potter interview at the weekend, and there was a lot of Villa fans coming on saying, "This is the kind of guy we need. We need a thinker. We need a coach. You know, not some vibes master who just blames his players when things go wrong." And there's almost like a kind of downer now on ex-pros um, with big careers going into coaching because I think fans have got very sophisticated about what makes a really good coach and have seen the Potters of the world um, do their thing and have a suspicion sometimes about the star name that's in the job that perhaps hasn't in their opinion done the hard yards and I, I kind of understand that as a sophisticated way to look at things but in some ways Stephen is under more pressure simply because he's Stephen Gerrard, because he's seen as, oh, we only appointed him because he's a big name. Um, and I think with both him and Lampard, the thing that's significant is the question marks are around tactics and coaching. And both of them may struggle. I mean, Frank probably has struggled without Anthony Barry, who was, I think, his tactical brain, really, at Chelsea. Um, and... Stevens just lost Michael Beale, and and that's going to be a really difficult person to replace in his in his coaching setup. So both under both under pressure, but you know almost for the opposite reasons that they, you know being being a big a big player used to buy your credit and I actually wonder if it makes people skeptical now. Johnny, just tell us about your fantastic uh, Graham Potter interview, which you can read on the Times app at the moment. Uh, what did you discover about him? Uh, where is he going? Or rather, what does he want to do from here on out? Well, I, I found him unlike anyone else I'd spoken to in, in, in football management, quite honestly. And one of the things was how he viewed his career and viewed the job. And he doesn't, as far as I can see, have big career goals and kind of huge ambitions um, overt ambitions anyway because that's not the way he sees the job he does see it very much as um, improvement human you know human relationships working with people um, and seeing almost where the journey takes you that's that's why you end up going from Hull University to Leeds Met to Swedish fourth division to, to Wales to Brighton because it's a different way of viewing a career and I think that's part of what makes him such a special coach really deeply thoughtful about the game but also very deeply thoughtful about um, relationships and, and culture I didn't you know you're always in an interview looking for traces of ego or um, insecurity or you go away thinking well that's what that's that manager's flaw or that's, that's what makes him tick and I found Graham Potter just more like speaking to almost someone from outside of the, the sporting 
ego-driven world um, with probably more subtle and complicated um, drivers, but but no obvious kind of big sense of ego. And I, I, I think that's that, that that's seen in in the teams he's created, in the the unity there, in the style of leadership. I think they Brighton showed it all over the pitch against Manchester United on on Saturday and and and, and we've or Sunday rather, and we've seen Porter's teams be the bit greater than the sum of their parts since you know he was Osterson, frankly. And I think it comes from the man himself. Johnny, I I love this interview. And Thanks. I mentioned on Tuesday that, that you know, clearly he's, he, he's got something. And But I couldn't, I, I've never been able to see it on a TV screen anyway when there's a microphone <laughs> thrust upon him. He's, he's not kind of, you know, he's often talks in pretty simple platitudes, really. But so did you see something different then when you sat down with him? And did you see something that was like, yeah, I can see why people want to play for this guy now? Yeah, I did, but but like you, Gregor, I was struggling to get a handle on who he was before meeting him, and that's okay. one of the reasons I wanted to do the interview. I thought, uh, you know, this guy's a great coach, but who is he? And watching his interviews, it doesn't necessarily come across. But what I think marks him out is the authenticity and maybe the different way of thinking, the different personality. He's 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 normal, you know. He's he's dialed down. He's almost sort of diffident and, and shy about things. He actually had a decent playing career, but really talks it talks it down. And I think a lot of managers want to put culture first and want to put other people first, but maybe can't fully do that. And I, I, I think he does. And then the other interesting thing, I think, is he sees the game maybe a little bit differently. And I didn't quite have enough space to really go into it in the piece, but we also talked about how he approaches matches and how he's won some of those games and he's almost like a post formations manager he doesn't look so much at um you know starting positions or um you know rigid systems it's about space and it's about where he can put overloads or where he can put specific players that are going to cause the opposition a problem based on where the opposition's flaws are and that's why people like Guardiola respect him so much because they come up against the Graham Potter side and he always does something that makes them uncomfortable, even Manchester City uncomfortable. And he always does something that surprises them and they can see there's a real different thinker at work. Time for the classic editor's question moment, Johnny. Future England <laughs> manager? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, because in personality terms, the person he's closest to is probably Gareth Southgate, but he comes with perhaps more coaching kudos, if, if that's the best way to put it. And... Uh, a way, as I say, almost a unique way of approaching the game. But but in personality terms, culture terms, I think Gareth's quite similar. So he'd be a really good continuity man. And I don't want to use the word upgrade because I, I I think that's a bit trite. We you know Gareth, and that would just be disrespectful to what Gareth's done. But he would he would certainly um, be a person that could take England on from where they are now. Do you think he would take it? Because you were, you were talking about in the interview, you know, he's, he's not seeing a big like career path ahead of him, and perhaps that the, the kind of pressure and all that, all the, everything else that comes with the England job would put him off. I think he would take it, but I think the question would be: Could he maintain his kind of sort of dialed down personality? And probably he seemed, did seem to me a fairly private person in some ways. Could he maintain that as England manager? I think he'd give it a go, but that, that, that the areas that he might find uncomfortable with the job would be 
the, the big outward facing stuff, the, the sheer press attention and all those awkward press conferences that Gareth handles so well uh, when his England manager is almost supposed to be the spokesman for the nation or whatever. Um, that would be the difficult part of the job. Taking it back to the game then at Villa Park, I only wanted to ask if Villa can afford to lose this as a part of me that wants to just put a bet on Stephen Gerrard to be the first manager sacked in the Premier League. I don't League. think we should because get Because if he loses against Everton, he then goes away to Palace, West Ham at home, Arsenal away, Man City at home. So if he doesn't win today, you're looking at some very tricky matches away at Palace. Could go either way, but then you're looking at, at West Ham, very good side, Arsenal and Manchester City after that. I, don't, I mean, it's tough. I don't think it'll matter because I think Villa will win because, you know, we've just had a fascinating discussion there about football and coaching and ultimately identity. What are you about as a modern day coach and a modern day manager? And that's what these two guys are struggling for at the minute, Gerard and Lampard. You know, we've talked about the coaching personnel from their staff that they've lost that has maybe hampered them um, in their careers so far. But you get the sense, you know, Lampard had it towards the end of last season where Everton's best player was their fans at home, really. I mean, it sounds a massive cliche, but it's true. It was the most significant thing about them. And I found that watching the game against Chelsea as well. I thought, God, these fans are absolutely incredible for the kind of football that they're seeing at the minute. And he's kind of gone for, as Gregor alluded to, a bit more backs to the wall. Whereas when he was at Derby and Chelsea, he was about, you know, playing in the more modern way. Gerard again, is perhaps still trying to find his feet in terms of a style at Aston Villa. And as we talked about last season, it seemed to be getting a reaction from his players, probably simply by being Steven Gerrard. <laughs> and so if you come back to those two factors, it's Gerrard personality v Lampard's at this stage in their career. Gerrard's probably wins because he says to Aston Villa, that was a disgrace on the opening day. We're at home. Let's lift it. These guys are there for the taking. And I'm not sure Lampard can do anything more than go, let's try and nick a point. And so I think Villa will win. I also think just quickly on, on Gerrard at Villa, uh, the presence of Christian Purcell, uh, who's kind of wanted him, I think wanted him to be the manager of Villa for quite a long time, um, knew, knew, knew him from Liverpool days. I think he's gonna, I think he's got quite a lot of support there actually. So I think yeah. when we're talking about pressure, it's more about external at the moment. Clearly, if they went went on a horrendous run and they looked like they were going to be getting relegated, he's in trouble. But I don't think they're going to do that. I think they might still be a middle and kind of not particularly inspiring team this season. Might be wrong. I think Villa are a stable club and, and there are other clubs more likely to panic. Uh, and I agree with Gregor that the pressure on Gerrard is more to establish his reputation than to keep his job, at least in the first half of the season. Listen, lads, keep that talk up. It will keep the, the, the odds lengthy for me and I'll, uh, I'll be off to the bookie <laughs> straight after this. Uh, listen, plenty still to come on the game podcast. Um, it's the transfer window, but we have entered the phase of desperation for a lot of football clubs. We'll be talking mad and desperate signings next. So, as a Manchester United fan, imagine my joy after our defeat against Brighton to see us linked with Marco Arnautovic, 33 years of age. And as soon as that was put to bed, well, phew, I was relieved only to wake up today to see us linked to Alvaro Morata, who apparently is going to solve the striker problem at Manchester United. Listen, it just got me thinking about the most desperate signings in football. And every club has made desperate signings, especially when we got to the end of the window. Some of them 
very very peculiar and we thought we might run through some of our our favorites i've asked you guys on the on the net i'll come to that next but tom you can start oh goodness me i'm glad we saved a good chunk of time for this because sometimes we (laughs) sometimes we prep these segments of the show and it's like oh we'll get a couple of minutes out of this we could have done a full show on this alone let's be honest Um, i'm going to start with crew who in July 2012 signed some left back who was absolutely useless called Gregor Robson. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I had to get it in. I had was that, to was get that deadline day, was it? I had to get it in. That was nice and early. Do the business early, crew. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I think strikers are a great a great um, area of the pitch for kind of desperation signings, aren't they? And uh, there's so many great ones um, down the years. West Ham, I mean, I know they've signed a what hopefully is a proper striker and a proper significant signing this summer but um, Savio Nozresco does anyone remember him? I didn't until I looked him up um, Simone Zaza Benny McCarthy Mido all pretty disastrous <laughs> signings for them I mean I think Liverpool signing Andy Carroll and yeah. uh, Ben Teke they're pretty pretty desperate and pretty pretty disastrous failings um, but the one the, the one I've got um, is uh, Sunderland in um 2016 desperately trying to avoid relegation it's not a striker uh emmanuel ebue had left galatasaray in 2015 at the end of the season and in march 2016 turned up at sunderland as a free agent yeah i think let's try and get some experience into this team try and stay up on the 31st of march he was banned from what for from football for one year for failing to pay an agent and left Sunderland in April a few weeks later having never played a game <laughs> in terms of des- desperate signings that complete turned out to be complete failings that was uh, so, see for me right they, they, they don't have to be complete failings but they do have to show a sign of desperation yeah. to them like we're getting towards the end of the window here we need to do something we need to just get someone in, in this position yeah and a player turns up who you'd forgotten existed yeah. at, at a certain club. I mean, Tottenham have also got a pretty good list of former strikers, Gregor's Raziak, um, I think. And uh, I don't know whether you can count this one. Is he at Derby? Yeah, he was, yeah. Mm-hmm. Came in 16 under, goals for Derby him, and yeah. they signed him. Came in under Martin Yoll. I think he played about eight games and never scored. I don't know whether you can kind of count it because it was kind of Man United trying to do them a favour, but Fraser Campbell going to Tottenham as part of the kind of Berbatov deadline day yeah we lost Berbatov Christ we need another striker uh, we have one of yours yeah you can have this kid called Fraser Campbell yeah sure no problem brilliant what a great signing that was Manchester United rescuing Odio Nogalo from China to solve all of their striker issues as well I mean worth a bloody 180 grand a week or whatever it was I know that a lot was made about the fact he like halved his salary to go to Man United not many people pointing out he was on a huge salary in China and got a massive deal for a player that shouldn't I mean, there's a lot of desperation so signings to be honest at Man United Radamel Falcao Marouane Fellaini that was what the sixth choice midfielder it was all wrapped up for Tony Cruz apparently and then we got Fellaini in the end who again wasn't a total disaster you know he was like the scaffolding that kept the building up for a period of time literally but um but yeah, there's a lot of Man U. I could go through some of the ones you guys sent me on uh, Twitter at Michael Owen to Newcastle, who clearly didn't want to come. Spurs signing Ryan Nelson, former Blackburn centre-back. Mario Balotelli to Liverpool at the last moment. Uh, this one, Shefki Kuki to replace Andy Carroll at Newcastle was pure Mike Ashley. Arsenal fan saying a, a full list here. Andre Santos, Julio Baptista, Kim Kallstrom and Mikel Silvestre. Leeds signing Dan James for £28 million on deadline day another one there as well a couple of my mates 
uh, messaged me, Sani, Berry fan, signing 34-year-old Jermaine Pennant back from Singapore, calling him a marquee signing, erroneously labelling him as a Champions League winner. That was a real sign that the owner didn't have a clue what he was doing. We'd be expelled from the EFL 20 months later. My mate Danny, Wigan fan. Uh, we signed Alex Bruce, James Weir, Matt Gilks, Mikel Mandron, Gabriel Obertan, Josh Lauren, uh, Jack Byrne, Omar Bogle, all on the January transfer deadline day in 2017. None of them were any good and we were relegated four months later. I, I can say, you know, I had QPR in 2012, uh, Mark Hughes as the manager to that list, I think. They mentioned Ryan Nelson there, I think he came on loan from Spurs mm. then <laughs> at the age of 34. Uh, Julio Cesar, remember him? Yeah. Uh, Bosingua, uh, Andy Johnson, uh, kind of when he's in his 30s and like was already on the way down. That was a disaster. Rob Green as well. Like, that plunged QPR that summer really into, <laughs> into like yeah. years of uh, turmoil. So that's one of the worst windows I can remember. Just pure desperation. We'll sign some some players from uh, from top four clubs and hope that they're they're decent and they're, they can be bothered. Have you have you played with players that the club has got in on a deadline day, and you've gone to training the next day and they're just either terrible or so out of condition <laughs> or they just never play and they're just awful the whole time they're at the club and you're just thinking watch him sit on the fence here this is desperate <laughs> this, was de this was desperate I'm not saying that this person was awful by any stretch but I remember when I remember at Forest we sold Marlon Harewood to West Ham for half a million which like, Marlon Harewood was, yeah. was a good player particularly in the championship and we bought Marlon King for a million pound so for twice as much and you know, someone who came with a little bit of baggage mm -hmm. and uh, <laughs> just <laughs> was a disaster really at Forest. He went on to do all right, but that was like, we were all scratching our heads. So hang on, we'll just let one Marlon go that's like really good for half half as much as we paid for Marlon King. That was an odd one that struck me, yeah. But there's often, there's been loads when, yeah, deadline days, you know, come and go and you go in the next day and you've got like five new players and, and you often don't know who they are or, uh, you know, how often you're going to see them on the pitch. Johnny, have you thought of any of these desperation signings? Oh, there's some brilliant examples there. And um, I just thought, like on Manchester United, I mean, you could do a whole section about them and their desperate signings post-Fergie. But one that one that always strikes me as having gone under the radar was Palistri and Diallo on roughly deadline day after, after a really bad window just to try and show the fans we're doing something for the future. We've got, we've got a scouting system. Here's some young players. It's about 40 million quid. And are any of them, either is Polistri ever going to play? And is Diallo going to go anywhere? I think they've, they've really got away with those. Um, I kind of think back to Scotland, though, when, when this question was put, my instinct was Mark Haightley coming back to Rangers in the middle of the 96-97 season. I was reporting on the old firm at the time. And at the time, but it was, it was a classic sort of tight title race between Rangers and Celtic. Rangers going for nine in a row. So they had to win it. Walter had to win it. Was a bit desperate at the time. Mark Haightley was more or less retired. He did retire after the season and became a manager. And Walter had the bright idea of bringing him back. And I just remember the press conference where it was in the kind of, uh, you know, you walk through the marble halls and you're in the grand old press room at, at, at Ibrox and Walter was waxing about, you know, this great warrior that we've brought back. You all know Mark, you all know his quality. And there were a couple of really sort of benign questions about, you know, the the, the talisman returning to Ibrox. 
And then Don Morrison, an old Sunday Mirror reporter, just one of those wise old hacks. I just remember him interrupting Walter and saying, uh, it never works. And Walter's like, what do you mean? And Don's like, never works. Bringing them back, never works, never works. And it just deflated the whole press conference. <laughs> well, I couldn't say anything. And sure enough, uh, Haitley got sent off on his debut uh, for headbutting Celtic's goalkeeper. I think it was Stuart Marshall. Uh, and, and I think played four times, scored one goal. Um, Rangers did win the title, but it wasn't anything to do with, with Haitley coming back. And Don Morrison was right. Well, that's an extensive list. We could have gone on and on and on about the desperation signings. Maybe we should revisit it just after the end of the transfer window and rate who made the most desperate signing of the window. But listen, Johnny Northcroft, uh, Tom Clark, Gregor Robertson, thank you for being with me. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back on Monday looking at the best of the weekend's action. But remember, if you want more of our great journalism, download the Times app. Uh, you can check it out as well online, thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game give us a like subscribe to the podcast as well and we'll see you very soon take care voiceover describes what's happening on your iphone screen voiceover on settings so you can navigate it just by listening books contacts calendar double tap to open Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.